0: I'm Holiday. I'm Tarrant. I'm Independence Day. Oh, a microphoney.
1: And a phony at the mic.
0: Yeah, Whoa! Over there. And now, on with the opera. Let joy be unconfined. Let there be dancing in the streets, drinking in the saloons, and necking in the parlor. Would you welcome Mr. Warm? Picture it. Sicily, 1920. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Killers, Cults, and Nutjobs 2.0, where we cover all crime. I'm, as always, your charming host, the great white snark, Scotty J. And seated virtually across from me is the lovely and beautiful Monica. Hi! Without her, this show could not go on, folks. Well,
1: not as well, right? Because it could still go on since you did it yourself for, you know, like what a couple it, it, years or so. But
0: right, it would just be me going. Um, there's supposed to be someone telling a joke here. All right, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> boys and girls, children of all ages, we are bringing to you one of the heavyweights in the world of serial killers. He's charming. He's dashing.
1: He's also remember our true crime update that I bring talk about me at the show, and now what's up? You know, about Michelle Nichols. Oh, so we literally just
0: discussed like, right. Well, a minute you know, ago, if everyone remembers <laughs> from Star Trek, Lieutenant O'Hara died. She was uh, July thirtieth. July thirtieth. Yes, we we had a, an unfortunate couple of weeks off. Um, last week, last week I lost my stepdad, so I took time off to to deal with that. Yes, I'd rather, honestly, that thing I'd rather have gotten a root canal.
1: True, and then this one was supposed to be in person.
0: Yes, uh, virtually, and we were going to give you the first. Yeah, we were gonna do the first live, me and Monica in the same room, but my
1: stepdad's illness kicked in. So, but just, anyway, getting back to Michelle Nichols and the true crime. But yeah, nice explanation why it's been almost a month. I'm like trying to remember how do we do this again. <laughs> it was like forever since we last right talked like this, but. But yeah, the true crime connection with Nichelle Nichols was her brother, Thomas Nichols was one of the people that died in the mass suicide with Heaven's Gate twenty five years ago.
0: Oh, I'm I'm gonna find some books on Heaven's Gate. Don't worry.
1: Well, the, the website's still up too. It's still <laughs> really? Oh um, yeah the the few there's a couple of members that still were on the website and it's still looks exactly the way he did in 97.
0: the uh, the people who didn't um, join the others
1: exactly obviously but yeah that's her connection to the true crime and that's wow, why I, I didn't know that brought up her death yep I remember when it happened that they said that one of the um, victims with you know the, right um was yeah you know, the brother of Michelle Nichols oh wow Star Trek, which makes it even a little more interesting considering the whole, you know, space. Right,
0: right. considering that they're supposed to be joining what was it, Comet Haley, Bo- Hale Bop. Yeah. supposed to be a spaceship behind Hale Bop that they're all going to join. Yep. Uhura, your brother is in a cult. That's, that's my Shatner.
1: Not too bad. No, was- no.
0: I, I got to work on it a little bit, but you know, yeah. yeah. Okay. First try, not too bad. No, no, not too bad. I, I tried, didn't I, I? Before we get in, I, I did Elvis once, and my daughter thought I did Johnny Bravo. So. Yeah. Okay. okay. Ted Bundy. He was born Theodore Robert Cowell. Probably no relation to Simon. On November 24th, 1946, to Eleanor Louise Cowell. But Ele- Eleanor went by her mu- went by her middle name Louise. So every time you see, you know, the documentaries and stuff, Louise Bundy. Her real name was Eleanor. Now, Eleanor Louise got pregnant, and she went to the Elizabeth Lund Home for Unwed Mothers in Burlington, Vermont. Uh, for those of you that don't know what these places are, they're they're homes that are usually run by nuns and back in the day it was kind of a sin for a girl to get pregnant as a teenager and, and be unwed so they would go there like i want to say probably around the third fourth month of the third or fourth month of their pregnancy they live there at the house they had the baby and the baby was put up for adoption and the parents never seen the kid again sometimes his father's identity has never been confirmed. Some accounts, by some accounts, his birth certificate assigns paternity to a salesman and a United, United States Air Force veteran named Lloyd Marshall. Though according to others, the father is listed as unknown. Now Louise claimed, okay, well, she she claimed she had been seduced by a war veteran named Jack Worthington who abandoned her soon after she became pregnant. Some family members expressed suspicions that Bundy might have been fathered by his own grandfather, Samuel Cowell. And I, and I think that's pretty much where they, um, at least with his paternity in every documentary I've seen, it's been listed that his grandpa was his dad. In 2020, American documentary film craze not insane or documentary film crazy not insane. Psychiatrist Dorothy Atnow, Dorothy Atnow Lewis claimed that she had been able to arrange a DNA test, which showed that Bundy was not fathered by his own grandfather. Okay, I, I believe that. Now, something else that was here for the first probably about the first three days of his life, Bundy stayed at the the home for unwed mothers because they would adopt the kids out there. And his mom went back. Now, they say that during these critical three days, the bonding with the mother is supposed to happen. It didn't happen with him. So that might be a tribute to what he did later. It was actually his grandfather that looked at his little girl and went, you go on up there and get that boy and bring him back. For the first three years of his life, Bundy lived in lived in the Philadelphia home of his maternal grandparents, Samuel and Eleanor Cowell, who raised him as their son to avoid the social the social stigma that accompanied birth outside of wedlock at the time. Ah, uh, just think, you used to live in Bundy's world. I'll have the comments about that in a little bit later. So. <laughs> I just want to know: it, it, Is the house still standing?
1: I don't know. I don't, like window. Don't know where their address uh, was. No, yeah, I don't think I've ever read exactly where it was. Okay,
0: because I would, I would go to Philadelphia and do a road trip to that house.
1: So on another note, um Ira Einhorn. Um, the apartment was still standing, and back in the early 2000s, I did go past that. So. Nice, <laughs> another true crime out there out oh, Philly. i have got so many. Oh God, I need to get a book on Philly. Yeah, there's a bunch of them. So us okay. C- continue. <laughs> Family, friends, and even
0: young Ted were told that his grandparents were his parents, and that his mother was his older sister. Uh, that happened to a uh, Clint Eastwood. Bundy eventually discovered the truth, although his recollections of the circumstances are varied. He told a girlfriend that a cousin showed him a copy of his birth certificate after calling him our favorite word, bastard. But he told biographer Stephen Mitchout and Hugh Ainsworth that he had found the certificate himself. Biographer and true crime writer Ann Rule, who knew Bundy personally, and I have her book on my shelf, wrote that he did not find out until 1969 when he located his original birth record in Vermont. Bundy expressed a lifelong resentment towards his mother for never talking to him about his real father and for leaving him to discover his true parentage himself. Bundy occasionally exhibited disturbing behavior at an early age. His aunt Julia recalled awakening from a nap to find herself surrounded by knives from the kitchen and three-year-old Ted standing by the bed smiling.
1: I have to I think, interrupt the storyline right now, but actually, I couldn't believe how fast it's. I just found the address. Really? Just a few seconds, yeah, which is like first time. But it says it was 7202 Ridge Avenue. And if there's even a picture of the house. It's on oddstops.com if anybody wants to like say it right actually yeah looks like a nice house too but um yeah now it is the lot is home to a small strip plaza so basically you could just go see where it used to be
0: okay so the
1: house yeah longer standing yeah seems that it you have further details says it seems as though the house was torn down at some point during the late 1960s
0: well a
1: darn yeah, so now I want to go find their grave. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As I do. So wow, there's a there's actually a lot of information on here. Yeah. So yeah, definitely. And the interest. Oddstops.com. So looks very interesting. I'll have to look at it all later. So sounds like the stuff you know totally up my alley. So right. Like our, yeah, our listeners too. So, all, you know, how many of you? But okay, I'll continue on. In some interviews, Bundy spoke warmly of his grandparents and told Rule that he identified with, respected, and clung to his grandfather. In 1987, however, he and other family members told attorneys that Samuel was a tyrannical bully and a bigot who hated Blacks, Italians, Catholics, and Jews. Beat his Probably wife and a family dog. Yep. And swung neighborhood cats by their tails. Lovely. Samuel once threw Julia down a flight of stairs for oversleeping. He sometimes spoke aloud to unseen presences. And at least once flew into a violent rage when the question of Bundy's paternity was raised. Bundy described his grandmother as a timid and obedient woman. Sounds like somebody else. I, you <clears throat> <No. laughs> who periodically underwent electroconvulsive therapy for depression and feared to leave their house toward the end of her life. These descriptions of Bundy's grandparents have been questioned in more recent investigations. So it could be another trying to get out of the death penalty or, you know, right. Extend life or, you know, Um. which life or something out, but yeah, I mean, anything's possible, but In 1950, Louise changed her surname from Cal to Nelson, and at the urging of multiple family members, left Philadelphia with Ted to live with cousins Alan and Jane Scott in Tacoma, Washington. In 1951, Louise met Johnny Culpepper Bundy, a hospital cook, at an adult singles night at Tacoma's First Methodist Church. They married later that year, and Johnny formally adopted Ted. Johnny and Louise conceived four children together. And though Johnny tried to include his adopted son in camping trips and other family activities, Ted remained distant from his stepfather. He would later complain to a girlfriend that Johnny wasn't his real father, wasn't very bright, and didn't make much money. Okay, so if if Johnny
0: tried to include Ted on the camping trips, could this have been, like, early exposure to the woods? Where, I mean, we know later he's going to dump bodies out there, Uh huh. Could this have been like early scouting trips for
1: Bundy? I would say probably still too young for that, though.
0: True, but I mean, you oh, know, like, it's a it's something I'm thinking about right now. That it's a possibility that you know that oh, yeah. exposure to the woods at a young age kind mm-hmm. of planted ideas for later.
1: You mean like later he remembered or? At yeah. the time he I mean at the time he thought, well, this would be a good place to hide a body later. Or no, like,
0: that's that's my son right now, but I'm saying this this <sighs> is later on and you know when he was a young kid.
1: And we're talking about Alex now. Like
0: oh, fucking Bundy Jr., I'm telling you, that kid scares <laughs> me.
1: Yeah, but I'm like, so you're do you mean well, like Ted's like remembering okay, like yeah, when Ted movie. got older and he
0: did his first
1: kill, he's like, Oh wait, the woods. Okay, yeah, I got you now. I thought you were talking about like when he was... No, because you, the know,
0: you, you it, gotta like, hide like, a body.
1: Yeah, okay. So, yeah, I see where you're coming from now. But yeah, that would make sense. So, Bundy varied his recollections of Tacoma in later years. To Michaud and Ainsworth, he described roaming in his neighborhood, picking through trash barrels in search of pictures of naked women, and to Polly Nelson, he said that he perused Detective Magazine's crime novels, and true crime documentaries for stories that involved sexual violence, particularly when the stories were illustrated with pictures of dead or maimed women. In the letter to Roll, however, he asserted that he never, ever read Fact Detective magazines and shuddered at the thought that anyone would. Yeah. Kettle, pot, right here. Hi. Yeah. He told, told Shaw that... He would consume large quantities of alcohol and canvass the community late at night in search of undraped windows where he could observe women undressing or whatever else could be seen.
0: Okay, I'm going to say right now, there is not, even in my town growing up, there were some of us who rode around at night hoping to catch a girl that we liked in school undressing with her windows open. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just when you take it farther when you're an adult. Now, it was during this time that one of the neighborhood girls, Anne Marie Burr, went missing from her Tacoma home. Her mother found her missing when she woke up in the morning. The police found a window open and the front door open. Her father, Don, went with a patrol car to search the neighborhood. Dad, this is what I found amazing with this story, that the cops let dad ride in the front seat to go search for the missing kid.
1: Well, considering what time it was, and back in 96 with John Binet telling yeah. her dad to go look around the house with his friend, and they were letting all their friends come in and, you know, console them and look around. So, yeah, not surprising, actually.
0: Foreshadowing for a later episode. Hmm. Oh yeah, we're we're See? gonna do we're gonna do Jean
1: Benet. Oh cool! I sold her house too. Yeah, so,
0: yeah. <laughs> now, Don saw a teenage boy standing in a muddy pit and the at the building site for one of the University of Washington's newest buildings. Despite many searches and as months passed, Anne was never found, and to this day, she's never been found. Some believe that this was Ted Bundy's first murder. He never admitted it. But he did say before he died that killers do take some secrets to the grave with them. I think he did it. Um, personally, I, wouldn't, I would love to see them take some ground-penetrating radar to those buildings to see if they could uh, find something. Accounts of Bundy's social life also varied. He told Mick Howden and Answorth that he chose to be alone. Ted Bundy, the first incel, as an adolescent because he was unable to understand interpersonal relationships. He claimed that he had no natural sense of how to develop friendships. I don't know what made people want to be friends, he said. I don't know what underlay social interactions. Classmates from Woodrow Wilson High, however, told the rule that Bundy was well-known and well-liked there, a medium-sized fish in a large pond. Bundy's only significant athletic avocation was downhill skiing, which he pursued enthusiastically with stolen equipment and a forged lift ticket. Nice. During high school, he was arrested at least twice on suspicion of burglary and auto theft. When he reached the age of 18, the details of these incidents were expunged from his record, as is customary in Washington and many other United States. After graduating from high school in 1965, he attended the University of Puget Sound for one year before transferring to the University of Washington to study Chinese. Let that sink in for a moment. In 1967, he became romantically involved with a UW classmate identified in biographies by several pseudonyms, most commonly Stephanie Brooks. Early in 1968, he dropped out of college and worked a series of minimum wage jobs. He also volunteered at the Seattle office of Nelson Rockefeller's presidential campaign and became Arthur Fletcher's driver and bodyguard during Fletcher's campaign for Lieutenant Governor of Washington State.
1: In August, Bundy attended the 1968 Republican National Convention in Miami as a Rockefeller delegate. Shortly thereafter, Brooks ended their relationship and returned to her family home in California. Frustrated by what she described as Bundy's immaturity and lack of ambition, psychiatrist Dorothy Otnell Lewis would later pinpoint this crisis as probably the pivotal time in his development. Devastated by the breakup, Bundy traveled to Colorado and then farther east, visiting relatives in Arkansas and Philadelphia, And enrolling for one semester at Temple University. So, we have a fellow, Al, along with myself and Cosby. So... But only one has graduated from there. You
0: went to Temple.
1: Uh Uh-huh. It was also at this time... Yeah. Yeah, I got a good Cosby story, pal. Commencement, Uh, him out, so yeah, yeah. Not big
0: well, thing. also, they, another thing about th- about this trip to Philly, uh-huh. they think <laughs> that Bundy murdered two stewardesses at this time and dumped their bodies in Jersey. Makes sense, yeah.
1: Jersey's
0: been, a, Jersey's been a dumping ground for bodies since how long? Since, <laughs> since, the, say, since the earth was created. <laughs> since the colony was founded.
1: Yeah, basically. It It was also at this time in early 1969 Rule believed that Bundy visited the Office of Birth Records in Burlington and confirmed his true parentage. Bundy was back in Washington by the fall of 1969 when he met Elizabeth Klopfer, identified in Bundy literature as Meg Anders, Beth Archer, or Liz Kendall a single mother from Ogden, Utah, who worked as a secretary at the UW UW School of Medicine. Their stormy relationship would continue well past his initial incarceration in Utah in 1976. Bundy became a father figure to Klopfer's daughter, Molly, who was three years old when he started dating her mother. He remained in her life until she was age 10 after he had been arrested. As an adult, Molly wrote of incidents in which Bundy was sexually inappropriate with her, including indecent exposure and sexual touching disguised as games. Uh Yep. In mid-1970, Bundy, now focused and goal-oriented, re-enrolled at UW, this time as a psychology major. Again, studying yourself, getting better ideas, (laughs) possibly, or just complete whack job? Uh, can we go with all of the above for 300, Alex? Sure. He became an honor student and was well regarded by his professors. Obviously, they weren't very good at psychology. I think they were high. Probably. In 1971, he took a job at Seattle's Suicide Hotline Crisis Center. There, he met and worked alongside Ann Rule, a former Seattle police officer and aspiring crime writer who, um, to say, spoiler alert, actually did become a crime writer. Of right. Summer. I've got,
0: I've <laughs> got three, I have three of her books on my shelf, and one of them is the book she wrote on Bundy.
1: Yeah. I was trying to be funny because uh, not very good, but
0: uh, yeah. <laughs> you're still good. It was so good.
1: Okay. Thank you. Who would later write one of the definitive Bundy biographies, The Stranger Beside Me? And I, yeah, I've read that one too. That's, it's really good. Roll saw nothing disturbing in Bundy's personality at the time. She described him as kind, solicitous, and empathetic. Actually, I remember like reading that um, he actually did like save some people's lives there too. I like, and they like called in like somebody yeah had overdose and he like called the police and they you know were able to. Hi, it's
0: like her, prevention. But yeah, it's weird, Ted, Bu- Ted Bundy speaking.
1: Ah. So yeah, he- it's like. How many people can say? I mean, there's obviously right. survivors, right. but how many people can say Ted Bundy saved my life? <laughs> right. Well, this is before he went off the deep end. Well, true, but still,
0: right? But I, you know, I, I, before I get to my part, I, they say that I mean he had a type, and if you look at uh-huh. a lot of the women that he will eventually murder, they're all brunettes with their hair parted down the middle.
1: Yeah. I'm um, safe.
0: Well, yeah, you're <laughs> safe. Down the After, middle. Yeah. <laughs> all right. After graduating from UW in 1972, Bundy joined Governor Daniel J. Evans's reelection campaign. Posing as a college student, he shadowed Evans' opponent, former Governor Albert Rosalini, and recorded his stump speeches for analysis by Evans' team. Now he Evans appointed Bundy to the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Committee. Um, future training here. I mean, I'm sorry, looking at his Bundy, uh, looking at his Bundy, looking at his past, I'm
1: seeing some red flags here. Just slightly waving. In, right, uh, in right, I right. I mean, there's not
0: a, there's not a <laughs> strong breeze.
1: No, yeah, but it's like it's getting there, right? Well,
0: you, you could kind of see some things forming here. After Evans was re-elected, Bundy was hired as an assistant to Ross Davis, chairman of the Washington State Republican Party. Davis thought well of Bundy and described him as smart, aggressive, keyword there, and a believer in the system. In early 73, despite mediocre LSAT scores, he was accepted into the law schools of UPS, UPS and the university of utah on the strength of, a le- of letters of recommendation from evans davis and several professors or several uw psychology professors i bet they were all like get this fucker away from us he kind of creeps the women out
1: sure the what well, exactly the way right well, I would say like the way the hospitals would fire the, you know. Oh, yeah. The, the, nurses, the, the, but that's the, still a different
0: right, yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, during their trip to California on Republican Party business in the summer of 73, Bundy rekindled his relationship with Brooks. She marveled at his transformation into a serious and dedicated professional who was seemingly on the cusp of a significant legal and political career. He continued to date cloffer as well. Now, neither woman was aware of the other's existence. Uh, We call this in the game the zip code game. Not that I'm aware that there's any type of game out there, I I was just told. In the fall of 73, he matriculated at UPS Law and continued courting Brooks, who flew to Seattle several times to stay with him. They discussed marriage and at one point he introduced her to Davis as his fiancee. In January of 74, he abruptly broke off all contact with Brooks. Her phone calls and letters went unreturned. When she finally reached him by phone a month later, she demanded to know why he had unilaterally ended the relationship without explanation. In a flat, calm voice, he replied, Stephanie, I have no idea what you mean. And hung up on her. Smart move. She never heard from him again. He later explained, I just wanted to prove to myself that I could have married her. But Brooks concluded in retrospect that he had deliberately planned the entire courtship and rejection in advance as vengeance for the breakup she initiated in 1968.
1: I can see it. I I, I can see it. Yeah, I told totally. us, like, of course, that's why he did it.
0: By then, Bundy had been skipping classes at law school. By April, he had stopped attending entirely as young women began to disappear in the Pacific Northwest. And this is where we are going to leave part one of Ted Bundy for this week, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for tuning in. Be kind to your spouse. Be kind to your pets. And don't forget to spay or neuter. Right. And, and, and Bob Barker's still kicking around there. Is he? Oh yeah, he? he's still alive. God. Yeah. Apocalypse is gonna happen, and Bob Barker's gonna be there talking about spade and neutering the radiated cockroaches and doing the showcase
1: showdown. Yeah, so but right, Bob Barker or Keith Richards, who's gonna go oh, first? Oh shit. God,
0: I'm, I'm, my is, money's on Bob. Pretty, yeah. Bob's going to go first because Keith Keith should have died back in the seventies.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, there was
0: a there was a bet going on in the seventies on who was going to die first, Keith Richards or Lou Reed.
1: Oh, well, then. <laughs>
0: but yeah, Bob Barker's ninety eight years old. Man, we better get security around him because you know. Mm-hmm. Anyone who gets up like 98, 99, you know, celebrity-wise, usually kicks off right before 100. Yeah, well,
1: well, George Burns made.
0: Well, right, but George Burns and Bob Hope made it, but like
1: Benny White,
0: (laughs) Larry Storch. You know, you get 99 and it's like, that's it. Ain't gonna make it.
1: Um, God, I forgot Kirk Douglas was one hundred and three. Okay, Kirk Douglas. Good lord! They
0: to, yeah, they had to take him in the sleep because I've seen Kirk Douglas's movies.
1: He was Spartacus, all right. Or sporadicus Yeah. <laughs> Got to get my clueless in there. <laughs> right.
0: Uh, if you're looking for Spotify, is the best place to find us until I can get us on Apple. But even then, we're still going to be on Spotify because damn it, I'm covering all the bases on this yeah. one. All right, for Killers, Cults, and Nut Jabs 2.0, where we cover all crimes. I'm as always Scotty J. Say
1: goodnight, Monica. Good night, Monica. This concludes our broadcast day. Good night and God bless. You.